0: New infections are appearing in new places every day.
1: People are walking around shedding virus to the people around them.
0: There are now more new global infections of coronavirus outside mainland china than inside where it originated and the world is scrambling to contain it
1: the world is experiencing
2: unprecedented events right now as the coronavirus pandemic affects the lives of millions of people all of italy the entire country a nation of 60 million people on lockdown to contain the coronavirus so how do you compare the mortality rate between influenza and covid 19.
1: Well, influenza overall, yearly, is about 0.1% to 0.2%, so that means one out of a thousand to two out of a thousand. What we're seeing out of both South Korea and China is about a... The fears of spreading across the global economy is
2: causing the worst week for the U.S. stocks since the 2008 financial crisis.
1: Governments are putting cities into lockdown, and they are urging everyone to
2: avoid public spaces... Apple's forecasting iPhone shortages. Coca Cola saying artificial sweetener is now in short supply.
1: So that's why it's Social distancing is a very key way of trying to prevent this, but this time we really do not have a preventative measure such as a vaccine that is in development and that's probably at least a year away. This is a time for straight talk. This is a time when we have to tell the public what we know and don't know.
0: A time for straight talk about a virus that might be spreading in ways we hadn't anticipated. You know what we're about to do? We're about to get real. We're about to have conversations that Christians have behind closed doors. The scary ones, the ones that make you feel uncomfortable. That's where we're going. Why? Because we're family. Ustedes son mi familia.
2: So, this is the Brian and Janelle Podcast. She's Janelle, and I'm Brian. If you don't want to miss anything, all you have to do is just hit that subscribe button to get a notification whenever we drop a new episode. This is the Brian and Janelle Podcast. We are certainly pleased right now to welcome to the show for the first time Dr. John Marino, who specializes in infectious disease and internal medicine, and his specialty has never been more relevant than I think this week. Good morning, Dr. Marino. Good morning, Brian. Now, before we get to a bunch of questions we have, can you give us a little picture of your walk with Jesus? How did you come to know the Lord?
1: I came to know the Lord in 1987, actually. It was through a church outing in which the Trout of Turin was being discussed by uh, Dr. Bromley. Um, At that time, the Trout of Turin was under investigation scientifically. At that time, I was a scientist and pretty much a non-believer. That um, period of time changed my life completely. And since then, I've been a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ and have tried to walk in his way through my life and my profession.
2: Praise the Lord. I I love hearing about that because science and faith can be cohesive. Am I right? Exactly true. Amen. So let's just start jumping into a bunch of stuff. I'm glad you're here today because we've all had time to sit and watch all these things transpiring with COVID-19. The first one I've seen so often, I'd love to hear your comments on, is people comparing COVID-19 to the flu and going, come on, you doctors, we never get this worked up about the flu. What's so special about COVID-19?
1: First of all, influenza and the COVID-19 virus pretty much occur in the same fashion. They're respiratory viruses, they're transmitted by aerosol and by, to some extent, contact with surfaces that the virus can land on. What is different is that this is a novel virus. We have not seen this particular virus in the world. With influenza, every year there is a type of a family of influenza that changes its genetic makeup that allows for epidemics to occur, with the last one being in 2008-2009 with the swine flu. At that time, the mortality rate was uh, approximately uh, 2% in some cases. And the influenza generally can affect just all age groups. With the swine flu, we saw even young children and babies be affected and have a high mortality rate. What has changed here is that because this virus has not been seen by the world, we do not have an innate immunity already present. So therefore, it has affected uh, great quantities of people across the world but the symptoms are about identical for each type.
2: So how do you compare the mortality rate between influenza and COVID-19?
1: Well, influenza overall yearly is about 0.1 to 0.2%. So that means one out of a thousand to two out of a thousand. What we're seeing from data across the world, and specifically I'll point to South Korea, which has done a remarkable job, and many of the things that we've adopted in the United States have come out of the approach that the South Koreans have taken, both in terms of data collection, the testing, and the types of protocols they have in place to prevent the virus. But what we're seeing out of both South Korea and China is about a 0.7% mortality rate across the board. That means about seven out of a thousand people have succumbed to the virus.
2: And as I'm watching things online uh, transpire, one of the latest things I've seen pop up is everyone sharing articles saying you shouldn't take ibuprofen if you get COVID-19. Could you comment on that?
1: That comes out of old data that uh, during many years past, children that had influenza that were taking drugs called non-steroidal and anti-inflammatory drugs, of which ibuprofen is a type's but it's specifically aspirin, which is a type of that. Children who took the combination had a neurologic, serious neurologic complications, which is called RISE syndrome. And I think what this is, is a somewhat of a response to that. We don't have evidence that that has occurred. That is people being very cautious in that they want to prevent try to prevent that. But at this time, we do not have evidence that that's occurring.
0: How long before you show symptoms are you contagious? And even after you recover, can you still shed and for how long?
1: That's a very good question. I think that points to why this epidemic has been so severe. We know that on average, five days it can take before you, once you get the virus, to develop symptoms and that can stretch out to 10 to 12 days in terms of shedding of the virus. Once you recover, start to recover, that is approximately 10 to 14 days. So we know that this is why the types of things that have been put into place to prevent spread are very important because we know that people are walking around shedding virus. Yeah to each other for uh, several days before they may have symptoms or may not have symptoms, but they're shedding the virus to the people uh, around them. So that's why social distancing is a very key way of trying to prevent this. At this time, we really do not have a preventative measure such as a vaccine that is in development. And that's probably at least a year away. In addition, we do not have an antiviral medication, In influenza, we have both of those. we have um, drugs that actually uh, attack and kill the virus, uh, one of which is Tamiflu. And then we have a yearly vaccine, which else to prevent us from getting. But at this time for coronavirus, we don't have those available.
0: In terms of social distancing and us waiting for the vaccine, there's a question that somebody texted and said, I've heard that this could go on for as long as 18 months with the waves of increased illness. Is this our new normal?
1: Well, I think that, you know, you're going to see those kinds of predictions based upon mathematical models. Unfortunately, we don't have enough data at this point to really state for sure the duration that this occurred. Those are all conjectures. I think that the best conjecture is put forth by the CDC and the National Institutes of Health. You might have heard Dr. Anthony Fauci, where he talks about 45 to 50 days, and I think that's probably a good estimate. And the reason I say that is if you look at the data from South Korea that recently came out, they had the onslaught approximately middle of February. And they're already seeing very low numbers um, as of yesterday. In fact, the if you can think of the bell-shaped curve, they're already in the bell-shaped curve, which is the acceleration in the number of cases on the left side. To where it peaks, and then the downside is where the number of cases start to decrease. And they're already very close to uh, one to two cases a day, which is where I think this is going to go
2: for us as well. Well, where are, we where are we on the curve? 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 Where are we on the curve?
1: We don't know that because what happened was we did not roll out our testing in an efficient manner. The United States CDC decided to uh, develop their own test. The World Health Organization already had an existing test. And when they rolled out this new test, there was some problems with it in terms of sensitivity and specificity. So it was put out into the uh, private sector to develop a um, much more specific and sensitive tests, which you're seeing being rolled out now. And there's still issues of getting this out, but I think as of yesterday, there was tens of thousands of tests being sent to the various laboratories across the nation.
0: Dr. Marino, is it true that the virus dies in warmer climates?
1: There is a, a lot of uh, conjecture out there. You know, when you look at why does influenza have a peak in mostly in the wintertime and then die off. It has more to do with many people in the population getting the vaccine or succumbing to the infection itself that leads to a, a certain percentage of a community that has immunity. And the virus, therefore, kind of dies off in because of that more than it's related to temperature because we have outbreaks and epidemics of influenza and other respiratory diseases like coronavirus in africa in the equatorial regions of the world where the temperature is very high and humid and it really doesn't appear to have an ef- that specific an effect
2: now i've seen a whole bunch of people who are uh, cynical. Like And I understand because I'm kind of cynical. Bringing up points online I'd like to hear your response to. One of them is, okay, so we're shutting everything down for COVID-19. Why didn't we do that for swine flu?
1: Good point. And I think that um, things should have been taken in the same way because the viruses are transmitted along the same lines. And as you recall, the swine flu in 2008, 2009, there were the 1,000 people that died of the virus uh, before there was any government emergency mandated at that time. Uh, I think that what you're going to see in the future is a quicker response to all respiratory disease epidemics earlier on.
2: Well, and you know what others are saying is they're saying, oh, look at, you know what this is? This is fill-in-the-blank group, the other political group, uh, the Chinese uh, whoever it is, they're trying to get us with biological warfare. This is planted. What's your response as an infectious disease specialist?
1: Well, I work in bioterrorism as well. In other words, um, after 9 11, we were worried about using various biological means to attack us. And I can tell you that if someone were to try to do that, make an attack through a biologic agent, I would think they would pick a virus or some sort of bacteria that has a higher mortality rate. And I throw out Ebola virus. Ebola virus was a terrible epidemic. Of course, it didn't affect us in the United States so much. But in Africa, Central Africa, eight out of 10 people died from this bacteria. And so when you think about what is going to have a greater impact as a bioterrorist, I think you would want to pick something that has a mortality rate and a penetrance that is uh, predictable like Ebola than a respiratory virus which has a very low mortality rate like I, coronavirus.
0: We have a text that came in regarding vaccines before we go there I noticed that they're already saying there's a vaccine already out there so why am I hearing that it could still take months?
1: No what you're hearing about is a, a uh, candidate vaccine That for which they started phase one testing on 45 people in the Seattle region. What this is, is a coronavirus vaccine that was based upon the old SARS virus, which is another type of a coronavirus from 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And this was picked out of the mothballs, so to speak, and resurrected, and now it is being tested as a phase one. What does phase one mean? Phase one means that they're giving the vaccine more for the demonstration of side effects as opposed to efficacy. There'll be further testing done down the line, and it'll take about a year to get that rolled out in order to safety and the efficacy are demonstrated. But at this time, this is just a safety test, and they're going to follow these folks, 45 if they've inoculated this week, for about a year to see that safety. But in the meantime, they'll be doing tests to see which dose gives the best response and if it's the response that's desired.
0: Once there is a vaccine available, will this virus become like influenza where we will have to get vaccination each year going
1: forward? You know, that's a possibility. We don't have any evidence that this is going to be a yearly issue at this point, although that is a possibility. And the answer is yes, it could be. Why does influenza change every year? Well, because it's genetic makeup changes. So we use models to predict where it's going to be in the world at what time and the vaccine is predicated upon that virus that has changed predictively we don't have much evidence at this point that this particular coronavirus has changed much genetically so it may just be one vaccine it may be that the virus will change genetically, at which time we'll have to update the vaccine itself. But at this point, we don't have evidence that it's changed much genetically.
2: We had somebody text in and ask a question. I think a lot of people are thinking about. They said, "My granddaughter works at such and such store. She's uh, so afraid to go to work because she's fear of contracting COVID nineteen and bringing it home to us. Should she go to work?"
1: You know, this is this is the uh, the crux of the whole uh, the whole problem, and I think. I think you have to to take it from where you are. I mean, your age, the, the likelihood you're going to get the virus, and then who is going to be susceptible to it in your realm of your life, your family? Do you have elderly folks who... Are much more susceptible. You know, when we look at mortality data presently available, people above 80, there's about a 12% mortality rate on those folks. And if you have throw in those that are elderly, that have a pre-existing condition, they're even more susceptible to succumbing to the uh, ravages of the virus with an imminent death. So I would say it depends upon your situation. All infections have a vast array of symptoms, all the way from no symptoms to severe symptoms and even death. So the younger folks are the ones that tend to have no symptoms or very mild symptoms. So it may be that they're carrying the virus. And the other thing is economically. I mean, we have folks out there and they're very scared at this point. And it's not only because they're worried about their own health, but it's Where's the money going to come from? How am I going to survive? So those are all considerations.
2: And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because that is one of the questions I've seen going around. I got an article from someone yesterday questioning whether the drastic measures of social distancing are worth the economic costs. As a infectious disease specialist, what's your thinking on this?
1: I think in order to get this thing under control quickly the best is to social distancing as much as we can, and as severely as it's occurred already. I think the government has taken a a dramatic but much-needed lead in getting this under control. I think what happened in China was this did not occur, and therefore the virus went rampant and attacked uh, uh, multiple segments of the population with a devastating effect. I think we use the South Korean model. They got on top of this quickly. They use social distancing. And they're already seeing, as I said, after a month, this thing dying out in the nation. So I think um, the social distancing is our only real mechanism to prevent the spread of this, and that it should be done to the extreme. Overreact rather than underreact.
2: And see, I'm wondering as well, since you have the unique combination that people don't hear other places, of being not just a man who loves Jesus, but you also are an infectious disease specialist and an epidemiologist, how does your faith impact your view of this particular outbreak?
1: As in anything in life, you have a certain degree of fear, and that fear is based upon lack of knowledge. And I think having knowledge, the more knowledge we can accrue, more data we can accrue, allays those innate fears. So what I try to tell people is, you know, let the professionals do their job. They're coming up with data and things are in a state of flux. I understand that. That's because the data and this virus is new and we don't have a handle on uh, what has happened in the past because it's never been on the face of the earth at this point. So I think having the data and having the faith in the people that are doing this, and there's some very good people in the front lines, both scientists, physicians, government officials and so forth, that have got this thing right on. I think we're spot on with this. I just think it's a matter of time. And I think the bottom line is, you know, we're all scared, but I like to think of the phrase that A.W. Tozer, a famous theologian and author, many years ago said, a scared world needs a fearless church. Fearless church. fearless church. fearless church, fearless church, fearless church.
2: And that's what society needs now is a fearless church meeting the needs of people who are scared and who do have real needs out there. Exactly. And you know, one of the things you mentioned was there's great people out there with good information. There's lots of bad information flying around social media. Where can we go to find information we can trust about COVID-19?
1: I think if you go to the website for the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC.gov, that's a good start. The National Institutes of Health also uh, has a website, but I think the the best and most comprehensive place to get information is the Centers for Disease Control. It'll be CDC.gov.
2: Now, I, I've got a couple more minutes with you, so I want to throw some random ones at you that have been coming in here. One of them is somebody's asking about the origins of the disease. There's lots of people talking about animal markets in China. and Do you know where it yes. came from?
1: We don't know. There's speculation that it originated in a bat population and then somehow made its way to humans, but that's conjecture. They're working on that. They do that through molecular biology. That is the science of detecting uh, viruses and their pattern of distribution in nature based upon their uh, nucleic acid. So that's just a conjecture. It appears it did come from Wuhan, China. That was the epicenter. Its origin Uh, possibly was related to um, bats. I mean, we have the same type of thing uh, that was conjectured when HIV first came out, uh, as well as Ebola virus uh, appeared to be in bird populations, bat populations.
2: What do you say to people who are panicked because they don't have a mask to wear when they go to the grocery store?
1: (laughs) Masks do not really work. Um, You see people wearing them in China and and, uh, on the streets. Masks work only in preventing the spread of virus from the person who has the disease. But wearing a mask around the street doesn't really do anything. Why? Because um, it is not adherent strictly to the form of the face, number one. When you get the virus, the point of penetration to your body occurs within a, a six feet radius of someone who's sneezing or coughing and producing aerosol. Walking around the street, there's going to be, sure, there's going to be virus in the air, but it's not going to be the concentration that needed to cause disease. So I tell people don't buy masks because, for one thing, masks are needed for other people that are in the throes of trying to treat this. That's your caregivers in the hospitals. But in and of itself, it doesn't do anything.
0: There's been information going around sharing the persistence of the coronavirus on surfaces. Yes. Do you agree with those?
1: Yeah, those are a couple of different, uh, most recent datas uh, out of Munich, Germany, where they've showed that the virus can uh, remain in aerosol form, that means in the air, on droplets for about three hours. Uh, There are various surfaces, too. You know, cardboard, uh, 12 hours, uh, plastics, um, certain metals, maybe up to three days. I I think this is a a mode of transmission because people, we tend to touch everything. Uh, And then we touch those objects and then touch our face, Mm -hmm. Um, mucous membranes, uh, like our eyes, our nose, and our mouth. And especially in times like the early spring, where environmental allergens become a problem and people are touching their nose they rub their face they're prone to inoculate themselves with virus they may get from a surface
2: so then what do we do? Because that'll cause fear in some people. So how do we clean those surfaces? How do we wash our hands? How do we prevent those okay. things that are sitting there from getting on us?
1: First of all, I want to point out that I saw you know, the run on all the different alcohol-based uh, hand sanitizers. Those are good and they're effective, but you know, still the best way to prevent is just frequent hand washing. Soap and water will work just as good. The problem is, you know, you don't have a sink by you all the time where you are. So I tell people, if you don't have those sanitizers, just wash your hands a lot. Just every time you go near a bathroom, just go in and wash your hands for about 20 seconds. Uh, We use the Lord's Prayer as the time duration needed to wash in order to do an uh, efficacious job. So you, you wash your hands, say the Lord's Prayer, and when you're done, you're, you've done a pretty decent job at uh, eradicating the virus. I think in terms of surfaces, that when you know you're going to be working in that kind of an environment, there are, um, you know, Lysol, hydrogen peroxide, bleach, those are all items that do an excellent job with wiping down any surfaces you may be coming in contact with.
2: Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with Dr. John Marino, who is, again, an infectious disease specialist, doctor, and epidemiologist. I know you've got a busy week. We're so grateful for your extra time today. We've already taken you late. So um, thank you again so much for your time and expertise. We truly appreciate it. You're more than welcome. Thank you.
0: Hey, hold up. Where are you going? You know you liked your time with us you want more so look down hit that button right there subscribe and you'll get updated episodes and then you can hang some more
2: and guess what you can help us How? a five-star rating
0: you can also hang with us live Weekday 6 to 9 a.m., interact with us, talk with us, download the Moody Radio app.
2: Or at brianandjanelle.org.
0: And we don't put all this together all by ourselves. There's some great people behind all this production. We want to thank Ron Eastwood, Kelly Ryder, Paul Carter, Doug Hayner, Mike Reynolds, and our awesome and fearless leader, Josue Villa.
2: And finally, this podcast is a production of Moody Radio in Cleveland, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Well, Brian, that's a wrap. Yep.